Second Decade is a historical podcast about a fascinating time in history, the 18-teens, and how that little studied period shaped the modern world. Once in a while, though, you gotta spread your wings and branch out a bit. On Second Decade Off Topic, I'm gonna give you some more history that falls outside the parameters of the main podcast. Informal, less scripted, perhaps less serious, Off Topic is to Second Decade what the people of New Orleans refer to as a land gap. An unexpected extra. So this episode, this uh, bonus episode, off topic, is going to be about a couple of interesting things. One of them is sort of film history. Uh, Interesting little studio called Sun Classic Pictures and its relationship to some of the cross-cultural currents that were going on in the late 1970s when they had a number of big hits. But this is really going to be kind of... uh, Uh, A little bit of film history, a little bit of business history, and a little bit of cultural and religious history with some political overtones. So again, we're not in the 18-teens. We're going to talk mostly about the 1970s. This really is related to the subject of uh, the main podcast, episode 25. Estwick Evans, a mountain man of the 18-teens who walked several thousand miles from New England to Detroit, then rode the rivers in the winter of 1818, you remember I compared him to Grizzly Adams, who's a real person. His name was John, or perhaps James, uh, James Capen Adams, born in 1812, died in 1860. He was mostly active in California, which had just become a state in 1850. Grizzly Adams was the, t- was the subject of a 1974 film called The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams, which spun off into a 1977 TV series starring Dan Haggerty. Both the movie and the TV series were the product of a company called Sun Classic Pictures. Sun, S-U-N-N. Sun Classic Pictures, interesting company. Film distributor, popular in the 1970s. Major hits include Grizzly Adams, which I've, uh, I've talked about. Some other films, maybe you've heard of them. In Search of Noah's Ark. The Lincoln Conspiracy. How about this one? In Search of Historic Jesus. They were mostly famous for documentaries and family films, and they were really, really successful. Three of the four films I mentioned, I just mentioned, grossed a collective total of $143 million at the box office. I could not find numbers for Lincoln Conspiracy. $143 million. That's in the 1970s. Adjusted for inflation, $575 million in today's money. More than half a billion dollars. Big, big business. The cultural reach of Sun Classic Pictures was was really astounding. I remember our family got cable. Uh, We were one of the first families in our area to get cable TV. This was about 1979. Uh, Cable TV was very interesting. There were no commercials. That was the whole selling point. It's like you could uh, watch TV without commercials because you paid for it up front. That was the theory anyway. They couldn't eventually resist putting commercials on it. Uh, They had a lot of programming to fill, even though the cable channels did not generally broadcast 24 hours a day like they do now. And there was a premier movie uh, channel. You would have your uh, choice, basically, of Showtime or HBO. Uh, Cinemax came later, Skinemax, as as it was sometimes called. One of my listeners who's messaging me right now. Anyway. The cultural reach of Sun Classic Pictures was was pretty amazing. So uh, it showed up on, on cable TV. Their movies showed up on cable TV quite often. 
Um, Historic Jesus, for example, was on frequent rotation on cable about 1979-1980. I remember a teacher, his name was Mr. Palm. We loved Mr. Palm. I remember him showing us the Lincoln Conspiracy. This was on a, a VHS uh, tape. And this was early 80s. This was about 1981. I was in the fourth grade. But he showed us the movie The Lincoln Conspiracy. I also found a tie-in, a book called The Lincoln Conspiracy, uh, movie tie-in. I found that book in my junior high library about 1985. Uh, a little disturbing now when you consider how inaccurate these films were as a matter of documentary history. But uh, lazy school officials, I suppose you can forgive them, or, you know, see a book with Abraham Lincoln on the cover purports to be history, or a movie that's uh, about Abraham Lincoln, again, purported to be history, rated G for kids, so what more do you need? Show it in history class. Uh, the story of Sun Classic, <clears throat> excuse me, Sun Classic Pictures, curious mirror into the cultural and political mindset of America, or part of America, in the late 1970s or 1980s. The reason I wanted to tell this story is because this story makes clear, at least in a little way, a small way, how the Reagan Revolution really changed America. The Sun Classic was not political. They did not make political pictures. But the pictures it did make are clearly wrapped up in some of the weird politics of this time, politics that, uh, that resonates today. You may have heard of fake news or alternative facts. Well, there's also a thing called fake history revisionist narratives of historical events that usually prop up a particular specific ideological worldview. Sun Classic Pictures was definitely part of this. Right company at the right time, big, big cultural reach. So who or what was Sun Classic Pictures? Uh, this was a movie studio owned, believe it or not, by a razor company. Schick, maker of shaving razors, maybe uh, you've heard of them. Uh, Schick established Sun Classic in 1971. Uh, Raylan Jensen was the founder. I'll talk a little bit more about him in a minute. But the real mover behind Sun Classic Pictures was Charles Edward Sellier, prolific author, producer, and marketing genius. Sellier, born in Mississippi, poor family. His father was a shipping clerk. He was devoutly religious. That's really not surprising considering the films that made him famous and vice versa. Sellier was uh, what's known as a Cajun Catholic, according to his New York Times obituary. I'm not sure what a Cajun Catholic is. Uh, my guess is that he was probably Acadian in uh, extraction, which accounts for his French last name, and the French who came out of Canada in the time of the French and Indian War were mostly Catholic. That was one reason why they were expelled from British North America during that war. <clears throat> anyway, that's a digression. Anyway, Sellier, Charles Sellier, uh, 20th century figure, uh, eventually became a Mormon. So where Sellier really made his mark was not so much creatively. I mean, he was, he was a fair writer, you know, middling uh, producer, actually directed uh, a famous horror film called Silent Night, Deadly Night. Maybe some of the horror fans among you have seen that picture. Uh, but he was really a business genius. The Journal of Popular Film and Television proclaimed in 1982... Uh, quote, Charles Sellier Jr., quite frankly, is the most creative business entrepreneur to emerge in the American movie business in the last decade. This is 1982. So let's go back a little bit. 1970s, a pivotal time for America in all respects. I would vote it as the most important decade in the 20th century in American history. 
uh, pivotal time for politics, culture, economics, religion, social upheaval was uh, really a mark of the 70s. And it had continued from the previous decade, the 60s. Social upheaval of the 1960s crystallized into popular society in the 70s. Uh, there was, in the 1960s, a challenge to traditional, by that I mean uh, the generally accepted post-World War II, thinking, uh, some historians call it a consensus, though there's some uh, dispute about that, uh, challenge to traditional thinking about politics, about gender roles. We had Betty Friedan in the 60s, uh, race, we have, of course, the Civil Rights Movement, Black Panthers, the American Indian Movement late in the decade, uh, new thinking about sexuality, Stonewall. There's another message from one of my readers. Uh, Stonewall riots, 1969, LGBT equality, that got going in the 60s. These trends were deeply unsettling to many people. Uh, squares, as they were called in the 1960s, people who didn't really... Uh, uh, get with the new program and were basically clinging to the old ways. Nixon, President Nixon, uh, first harnessed this unsettling feeling. In 1968, when he ran for president, he deployed a couple of different uh, slogans and ideas, silent majority, law and order, those themes. And these themes really cast the dominant values of U.S. society, uh, the traditional values, started to cast these as underdogs, depicting them as under attack. Clearly, this is a very confused time, but the 1970s made it all worse. We had Vietnam and Watergate seeming to validate criticisms by hippies and other troublemakers uh, from the previous decade. <clears throat> it's the end of the big boom. By that, I mean the post-World War II pulse of industrialization, consumer heyday. Uh, steel mills, heavy industry was closing, moving out of America. If you've seen the film The Deer Hunter, this takes place in western Pennsylvania, it depicts this in tandem with Vietnam. Uh, the energy crisis reached its peak in 1974. Watergate forced Nixon out of office. Conservative families with young kids. Uh, my family was like this. My father was a military officer. So conservative families with young kids kind of felt that the world and sort of uh, American culture had become a very scary place for them. It was a very dangerous place. So that year, 1974, was when Cellier... Uh, started, I think he started, I, I couldn't quite pin this down, but he was certainly a bigwig at Sun Classic Pictures. Eventually he ran the company. Um, this was a small company run out of Park City, Utah, which is just to the east of Salt Lake City. Cellier wrote the novel, The Life and Times of Grizzly Adams in 1972, uh, which is adapted for the screen for his own company to be released by Sun Classic Pictures. He did not direct, it was directed by Richard Friedenberg, uh, who was later famous in the 1990s for writing a screenplay for a film called A River Runs Through It. Perhaps you've seen that. Uh, I couldn't sit through it. Uh, anyway, uh, the film starred Dan... Uh, I'm talking about Grizzly Adams. Uh, the Grizzly Adams film starred Dan Haggerty as Grizzly Adams. California mountain man on the lam for a crime he didn't commit. He goes out to the woods and befriends a bear. Grizzly Adams released November 13th, 1974. Huge hit. $65 million in rentals off of a $140,000 budget. That is an absolutely phenomenal return on investment, especially in the film industry, which is notorious for uh, losing people losing their shirts on, uh, on films. Uh, the picture was rated G, kid-friendly, uh, and it really scratched an itch for parents who wanted to take their kids to see something wholesome. 
This was exactly the same kind of itch that was scratched by another 1974 production TV show called Little House on the Prairie. Uh, I grew up on that show. Perhaps you did too. So how did they do it? How did Sun get this little tiny $140,000 picture into theaters on such a huge scale that they recouped $65 million on their investment? They were not a distributor with a huge reach like the big studios. The majors were about eight or ten uh, major studios in Hollywood, and they controlled almost everything. But this was a key time. 1974 was right in the gap between the collapse of the old studio system and the corporatized movie business that arose later, characterized by the mega blockbuster. The first of those being a little film I'm sure you've seen called Jaws, which came out the next year, 1975. So commercially, at this point, there was an opening. Cellier was a businessman. He was a huge consumer of market research. He'd market test ideas about movies before greenlighting the pictures. He'd spend tens of thousands of dollars on market research to know what he thought audiences would like, and then he provided what they said they wanted. So he knew ahead of time that that itch was was there, and he knew that Life and Time of, Times of Grizzly Adams was going to be a huge hit, which it was. Cellier's real genius was called four-walling. This is a new technique in the movie business. It's a way to get around a studio distribution stranglehold. What Sun would do, what Sun Pictures would do, they would go to theater owners, usually in chains, especially in the Midwest, South, what they call underserved markets. That means not LA, not New York, not major urban areas. But Sun would go to these theater chains. They would offer to buy out the theaters for a specified block of shows at a discount. Uh, they show their own pictures, collect 100% of the box office take. Theater owners didn't care very much about admissions. They make their money from concessions. Popcorn is much more profitable than movie tickets. Plus, there's no distribution fees or kickbacks to studios or distributors. That's how four-walling worked. Uh, so four-walling, as it was called, uh, that term comes from uh, basically the four walls of the theater. Supposedly, you own everything within the four walls. Four-walling was Sun's entire business model. Raylan Jensen, who founded Sun Pictures in 1971, had success with four-walling in 1968 when he distributed a documentary called Alaskan Safari with great success. Because big movie companies focused on the big markets, four-walling especially was especially successful in places like Florida, Texas, Oregon, and yes, Utah. Documentaries and family films were especially successful in the four-wall model, but not we're not talking about highbrow documentaries, not intellectual stuff. Aside from Alaskan Safari, the model and the biggest early success for Sun Pictures was the U.S. reissue of a film called made in Europe called Chariots of the Gods. This is a spurious documentary based on a ludicrous 1968 book by Eric von Daniken. This, uh, this too, this book, uh, which is about... Uh, ancient aliens. Surely you've heard that term. This book, too, is tied to the ethos of the 60s. New Age themes, emphasizing spirituality, often with a kind of a Native American or Eastern Indian flavor. Uh, UFOs and aliens, conspiracy. This played right into the cultural ethos of the Watergate era. So look where these markets are. Texas, Florida, Oregon, Utah. Now, now these are all red or purple states. Oregon's a little deceptive. You may think it's a, uh, it's a liberal paradise. In fact, Oregon, it's where I live, is very, very conservative, except for the urban areas. 
Portland, People's Republic of Multnomah County, they call it. Uh, exactly the same base lives in most of Oregon, the same base that Nixon called the silent majority. So religion, especially evangelical religion, is also on a resurgence in these kind of areas in the 1970s. Same era as the establishment of the mega church, PTL, Jim Baker, Tammy Faye, Jimmy Swaggart, Jerry Falwell. This was all a backlash to 1960s social disruptions heavily steeped in evangelical Christianity. Phyllis Schlafly was in this era. Uh, she was uh, opposing the Equal Rights Amendment. Anita Bryant was opposing homosexuality, LGBT rights. So you can see where this is going. Cellier's market research related to the audience he wanted to serve through four-walling showed that there were conservative, uh, the people he wanted to reach, they were conservative, they were religious, they had young kids, and they rarely went to the movies. They felt underserved. They were underserved. If you're Joe Mormon or Joe Baptist from Medford, Oregon, you want to take the kids out on a Saturday afternoon to the movies, you look through the paper, all you see, most of what you see, is sex and violence offered by Hollywood, or else Disney pictures, uh, very corporatized, a lot of distrust of Disney, even in that era. So what are the alternatives? Hmm, but there's a picture called In Search of Noah's Ark, laying down at the Bijou. Guess what? Honey, get the kids in the car. Bang, Cellier just made another sale. It sounds like I'm knocking this. I'm really not. I I'm really not. I'm, I am not an evangelical Christian. Uh, but it's clear that there was an underserved market in the movie business that Sun Classic filled perfectly well. In Search of Noah's Ark was the real fulcrum. Uh, based on a book by, guess who, Charles Sellier, it took up one of the key themes uh, that you see in evangelical Christian milieu in the late 20th century, that being the search for Noah's Ark. Especially in evangelical circles, the idea that Noah's Ark, that's uh, the big boat that Noah uh, supposedly, uh, you know this story, uh, two by two, the animals landed on Mount Ararat, etc. In evangelical circles, the idea that Noah's Ark, uh, described in Genesis, is literally up there, still up there on Mount Ararat in Turkey, and that you can find it through an Indiana Jones-style quest, and of course, if you have enough faith. Searches for the Ark, uh, I almost said the Ark of the Covenant. Da, 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 da. Uh, I'm sorry, searches for Noah's Ark have been going on since the 19th century, but with the revival of evangelical Christianity in the late 20th century, this kind of thing really got going. Numerous expeditions, millions of dollars spent, usually bankrolled by wealthy or, or famous church personages. Uh, James Irwin, uh, former astronaut, he walked on the moon in 1971 on Apollo 15. He became highly religious and evangelical after he returned from the moon, had a heart attack in space, actually. Uh, he led more than one expedition to find Noah's Ark, beginning in 1973. So why evangelicals, and why did they do this in the 70s? Uh, well, historical currents. Uh, the Noah story in Genesis and the flood, is that's one of the first things people look at when they want to try to find evidence of a literal biblical creation. Curiously, Jews are not that interested in Noah's Ark. I'm Jewish. Uh, I, I'm really not drawn to that story, but evangelical Christians really are. Proof of a big biblical creation is the ultimate backlash against Darwin, against evolution being taught in schools, the secularization of America as it was perceived in the 1960s, breakdown of those old institutions I was talking about, pushback against that. The 1970s was a time of consolidation, 
among people with these kinds of beliefs. Uh, 1976-77 is uh, the time uh, of In Search of Noah's Ark. This is the perfect storm where the 60s crashed into the 80s. Distrust in government was very high thanks to Watergate, the, the Ford pardon when Ford pardoned Nixon in 1974. Ford barely lost to Carter in the election in 1976, and Carter himself was, guess what, an evangelical Christian. Not, evan not all evangelicals are conservatives. Carter was born again, a small businessman from Georgia, peanut farmer, also a nuclear engineer, though that didn't get talked about as much. Yet what does Carter do when he's in office? He pardons Vietnam War draft dodgers. He gives back the Panama Canal, struggles with the energy crisis, uh, uh, which led to the perception that he was costing jobs in oil-rich states like Texas and Louisiana. He gave a Playboy interview. This is uh, true, but this is uh, highly overlooked today. But this was huge at the time. He gave an interview to Playboy in which he, he admitted, I committed adultery in my heart. That turned off a lot of people. Then the economy went bad. And then finally, hostages. The psychological effect of the hostage crisis on America cannot be overstated. At the same time, evangelical voters were mobilizing politically. We had Jerry Falwell, the moral majority, seeking to directly intervene in temporal politics. So who shows up in this orbit? Big shocker, a lot of the same people. Phyllis Schlafly, Anita Bryant, Billy Graham. Meanwhile, Sun Classic Pictures is still churning them out. The hits, I mean. Harnessing various anxieties of the age. Lincoln Conspiracy is very slanted, historically irresponsible, presentation of the Lincoln assassination, arguing that a cabal of shadowy northern politicians rubbed out old Honest Abe because they didn't like the idea of him being nice to the South during Reconstruction. So this is a key 1970s theme, conspiracy theory, a government you can't trust, controlled by shadowy people. This is a very key theme, resonated particularly after Watergate. Evangelicals were as dismayed by Watergate as everyone else. In 1977, the year of the film's release, this was the high point of JFK conspiracies and popular consciousness. In fact, the mania for JFK conspiracy led to the, the uh, commissioning of the House, talking House of Representatives, House Select Committee on Assassinations. So there was a whole theme of what really happened. Uh, always an answer just below the surface, below what they want you to think. And who are they? Elites. There's also a certain amount of flag wrapping going on in the Lincoln conspiracy, American symbols. I mean, what more American, how more American can you get than Abraham Lincoln? So a movie like Lincoln Conspiracy could only have been made in the 70s. Charles Sellier's market research did him very well. All these films were big hits, marketed extensively with tie-ins. As I said, the book Lincoln Conspiracy had a reach into, popular, into public schools, as I found in the 80s. 1979 was perhaps the high watermark for Sun Pictures, a string of big hits. Cellier was now one of the biggest, if the least known, impresarios in the entire movie business. Sun's mission was now increasingly to recast historical events in a Christian theological context. In Search of Historic Jesus was the next Sun hit. This is a documentary that proceeded to validate a Christian worldview, not surprising with that title, also played a little fast and loose with the facts. Uh, facts, though, uh, are never the point. To appeal to Sun's audiences, only facts that reinforce a particular worldview matter. 
In reality, historical evidence of Jesus Christ, the man, is actually pretty hard to come by. It seems certain that he did exist. Uh, there are too many documentary sources to ignore uh, and to claim that he did not exist, as uh, many people do. Uh, so he did exist, but pinning down anything, anything that specific in first century Palestine is a very tall order from the standpoint of historical or archaeological fact. So 1979, the year the film came out, the moral majority in the political evangelicals, that's not all evangelicals, but many, they find a new political champion from Hollywood of all places. His name was Ronald Reagan. Uh, Reagan took Nixon's law and order ideas and the Southern strategy and capitalized on it. Carter handed him opportunity after opportunity on a silver platter, especially regarding Iran. Uh, Reagan promised a sort of secular revival of American values in much the same way that evangelical churches were promising a spiritual and religious revival. Reagan was popular everywhere except where the coastal elites lived, but he was especially popular, especially strong in those same kind of demographic areas where the Sun Classic Pictures had their core audience. Reagan wins the election of 1980. That same year, Sun was purchased by Taft Enterprises, went through a various, uh, number of various corporate changes. They had a couple of successful pictures in the 80s, including a horror film called Cujo, based on a Stephen King novel. Uh, but they never quite could uh, bottle the lightning that they had uh, in the 70s. Uh, so you could, the sun set, you might say. Uh, sun still exists today, but it's under totally new management. Um, the uh, name of Sun Pictures is really all that's left of the old regime. Charles Sellier himself died in 2011, still highly admired as an innovator in the film business. The 1980s was a resurgence for the evangelical movement. Christianity, fundamental ideas about evolution, gender, family hierarchy, etc., all that was back in vogue. They had suffered a defeat in the 1960s, but then a conservative resurgence in the 80s. This is the story of modern conservatism. Uh, the effect of this, as you well know, is that the divide between what we now call Red America and Blue America greatly deepened. The problem with Sun Classic Pictures is that they didn't really respect history very much. In a sense, it's unfair to have asked them to do that. They weren't in the history business. They were in the movie business, the entertainment business. Charles Sellier was a businessman, not a historian. He was in the business of providing a product that his, that his audiences wanted to see. But obviously, when you're dealing with something that purports to be historical truth, or that many people will assume is historical truth, you tread on some very thin ice. Noah's Ark really... Edwin Stanton helped kill Lincoln? Really? Ancient aliens? This is nonsense. It's just, it's nonsense. But sensationalized pseudo-history like ancient aliens has always been more popular than real history. I guarantee you, if I did a show on ancient aliens, it would be far and away my most popular show. Why? Because those pesky elites, scientific elites, historians, intellectuals, a lot of people chafe at being told anything by those that they perceive to be elites. I suppose that I'm an elite. Certainly many people have told me so in uh, negative blog comments that uh, come in, sometimes emails. I know this. As it turns out, fake history is much harder to shake even than alternative facts. Alternative facts eventually crystallize into fake history. People start to believe it and they start to disbelieve 
real historical facts. Give you an example, John F. Kennedy was not killed as part of a conspiracy. Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. That's proven historical fact. Yet 50 to 75% of the American public insists that he was killed as a result of a conspiracy. Pushing back against these beliefs is very, very difficult. Facts have a really hard time making a difference. We're trained to interpret the world in a way that's consistent with our values. I do it too. I'm not immune from it in any sense of the word, and I have never claimed to be. But in now, in 2017, this is normalized. And now we have separate realities based on our ideology and our worldview, separate facts, separate narratives of history. There's not much I can do about that, except call them like I see them. You may agree with me, you may disagree, but I'm going to continue to tell, to tell history as I think it happened. And I think many of you will appreciate that. So thank you very much. Um, remember, this is just an adjunct to the Second Decade main podcast. Uh, there's a Second Decade book in the works. I talked about that at the beginning of episode 25. Also, I'm going to be hosting another podcast on the New Books Network. Just go to newbooksnetwork.com, uh, click the science and tech bar, and then pull down Enviro Studies. And uh, you will uh, see, and I don't know when this is going to be, it'll be soon, uh, but you will start to see some interviews that I'm doing with the authors of various environmental history books. Also, uh, you can see my website. Uh, I have, in fact, a, uh, an article about Sun Classic Pictures on my website, seanmunger.com. Uh, you can visit my Patreon. That's uh, patreon.com slash seanmunger. I have an Amazon, a page on Amazon where you can uh, see my books and all of that kind of stuff. So thank you for joining me, and I hope this was uh, successful. If it is, if I get some views, if I get some, uh, some good comments, I may do another uh, second decade off-topic. So uh, that will do it for tonight. Thank you, and have a good evening. The theme music for Off Topic is called Stealth Groover by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.